Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Today we are honored to have Dr. Susan, Susan Folkman present her talk entitled Stress is the Norm, It's How You Cope With It That Matters. Dr. Folkman is the director of the UCSF Osher Center here at the Mount Zion campus. She is internationally recognized for her theoretical and empirical contributions to the field of psychological stress and coping. Her work since 1988 has focused on stress and coping in the context of HIV disease and other chronic illness, especially on issues having to do with caring, caregiving, and bereavement. And without further ado, please join me in welcoming Dr. Folkman. Thanks, Christina, for that very nice introduction. And how nice to see everyone here waiting to find out how to cope with stress. <laughs> I understand that this is probably one of the more stressful periods that we have all been living through. And I hope that when you leave the room, you will know something more about how to cope with it than when you entered. Okay, so today's talk. First, we're going to find a common vocabulary with stress, with coping, and then I'm going to talk about some principles of good coping. And then I'm going to introduce another perspective about positive emotions and their role in stress and coping in positive emotion. So let's define stress. One of the most common definitions is that stress um, is as a fight or flight response, as a response to stress. And you know about this when your cortisol shoots up, your heart rate increases, attention narrows, and your body is fully mobilized. I'm sure everyone has experienced this. And then stress is sometimes defined as something that happens to you. Stress is a stressor. Um, bereavement is a major um, is an example of this. And one of the major measures of this is called the Life Events Questionnaire, which was developed by Holmes and Ray in the 1960s. And they weighted 142 events with what they considered normative weightings. Death of a spouse was given 100 points, divorce 73. And this one I think you'll like. Remember, this was the 1960s. Wife begins or stops work, 26. It's only exceeded a little bit by foreclosure of mortgage or loan, which is 30, and a vacation is 12. So anyway, that was a life events approach to measuring stress. And then stress is defined as an imbalance when demands exceed resources. And in case you can't see the poor woman at this desk, she's in there buried with all this paper. And it's assessed with items such as too much to do, I didn't know how to make things better, I don't have the energy to cope. And then there's stress as an appraisal. Stress as an appraisal, it takes into account the demands and the resources, but it asks something else that's very important. Does this situation matter to me? And this is the key, because we can all be in situations where the demands exceed the resources, but if it doesn't matter, it's not going to be terribly stressful. So which of these definitions rules? Well, let's look. The most commonly used measure of stress is the perceived stress scale by Cohen et al. And this is the first three items on the scale. In the last month, how often have you been upset because of something that happened unexpectedly? This sounds something like the stressor definition. Felt that thing that you were unable to control the important things in your life. This sounds like the appraisal-based resource demand definition. 
felt nervous and stressed. You guessed it, the response definition. So all these definitions are used in the measurement of stress. It's just important and helpful to know when you're speaking of it what you mean by stress. I feel stressed. Do you mean that you're feeling your heart rate go up? Do you feel that demands are exceeding resources? Or do you feel that something has happened to you? It might be any one of them or all three. But those are definitions of stress. So stress in our lives, it's ubiquitous. It varies in frequency. It varies in intensity. And it varies in duration. And a good analog of stress is heart rate variability. So I want to ask this this group a question. It's a little test. Can you tell which heart rate pattern is healthy? And if you're a cardiologist, please exclude yourself from this discussion. So which heart rate is healthy? Is it A? How many would vote for A? How many vote for B? How many vote for C? And how many for D? Well, from here I will tell you that there's a distribution that's normal, that's flat. There was some, about the same number of people who voted for each one. So now let's just look and see what the answers are. A is heart failure. <laughs> B is heart failure. D is atrial fibrillation. C is normal. And I think this is a good analog of stress. Stress is normal. It's normal to have stress in your lives. It goes up and down. If you had no stress, what, how do you think it would be? Really boring. If you have too much stress and it's flat across the top, that's too much. That's deadly. You, the stress in our lives is like heart rate variability. It comes and it goes. And very often, unlike heart rate variability, stress is not predictable. So normal stress varies in intensity, duration, and frequency. But sometimes stress is intense, enduring, and chronic. That's when it can be very dangerous. And that's what we want to talk about today. How do you cope with stress when it's like that? How is it managed? So the question here now is coping. So the definition of coping, there are, there are more definitions of coping than there are of stress, believe it or not. And some languages don't even have a word for coping, like Spanish doesn't have a word for coping. So as ubiquitous as it is in our language, its absence in other languages suggests that this might be a peculiarly American concept. But nevertheless, it's ours. And it has to do with the cognitive and behavioral efforts to manage stressful situations. Now, the word manage in here is very, is very key. Very often when people speak about coping, they're implying that you're succeeding in mastering whatever it is that's going on. But we all know that some of the most challenging and profound stresses in our lives cannot be solved. They're the ones that get us day in and day out. They're the ones that there is no resolution to. And those are the coping efforts to manage those situations are just as heroic as coping efforts that succeed in solving a problem. So we emphasize the word manage. And there are two major categories of coping. The first has to do with the regulation of emotion, especially distress emotions. And for that, humor is often used, seeking emotional support, looking on the bright side of things, distancing and distracting yourself, putting the problem out of your mind, and escape avoidance. Now, these vary in their adaptive quality. Humor is, and seeking emotional support are generally adaptive ways of regulating emotion. Escape avoidance is generally maladaptive. But they're all ways of regulating emotion.
And then we come to problem-focused coping, which is the managing the problem causing distress, instrumental coping, fixing things, problem-solving, information-gathering. Those are all examples of coping strategies that serve these two functions. Now, what's important to know is that in most every stressful situation that people encounter, they use both forms of coping. Sometimes you have to regulate your emotion before you can engage in problem-focused coping. Sometimes you have to do problem-focused coping in order to reduce your distress. The two work together and in different directions, but people use virtually, they use both kinds of coping in virtually every situation. So there are four general principles of effective coping in dealing with chronic and complex stressful problems. These are the four, and then I will walk you through an example of them. First, focus on the specific situation rather than the total stressful context. Two, ask what made it stressful. Three, distinguish changeable and unchangeable aspects. And then four, fit the coping to the situation. So let me unpack this a little bit. First one, focus on a specific recent event that was stressful rather than on the whole large issue. It's a good way to begin. Let's take the global situation of an elderly mother who requires caregiving. And the specific situation that happened, she forgot to take her meds on Wednesday. So rather than focus on the big global situation, what you focus on is a specific incident, instance of that situation. And the fact that this matters to me means it's something that's stressful. If it didn't matter, it would be more just instrumental coping and taking care of things, but this matters. So there's worry and there's fear and anxiety to deal with too, your own. So you have your mother's problem and you have your own response to it. Number two, ask what made it stressful for me. This will help define the coping tasks. So again, we're dealing with the elderly mother who forgot to take her meds. And then we ask what made it stressful. This, in the language of stress and coping theory, has to do with what was at stake for the person. Why did it matter? Danger to her health if she doesn't take her meds. This could be the beginning of serious cognitive decline. How will I manage to care for her? So these are examples of why the situation might be stressful. It could be stressful for other reasons, too. But once you ask this question, then you begin to define the problem that needs to be managed. So identify which aspects of the situ situation you can do something about and which ones you cannot. Sounds like the serenity prayer. It's similar to it. Danger to her health if she doesn't take her meds. So what can be done? Well, there are different tools and instruments that, and schedules and different props that we can use to help people remember to take her meds. So there's something that can be done there. But what has to be accepted? It might be that she's going to inevitably forget to take her meds sometimes and there's nothing you can do about it. So you won't be able to get perfect adherence, perfect compliance, but maybe there are some things you can do. This could be the beginning of serious cognitive decline. How will I manage to care for her? What can be done? Well, there are things that can be done. You begin to make plans. You begin to um, talk to resources, um, get information. So there are some things you can do to begin planning for the care, but there are probably things that you can't do. Some things have to be accepted. Like the big, the big acceptance is she is going to begin losing her cognitive capacity, and that has to be accepted. So there are things to accept and things that can, something can be done about, and it helps to sort them out. And then 
uh, this is the same principle as the serenity prayer. God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things that should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other. I think that's a useful precept. So then match the coping to the situation. There are controllable aspects that require problem-focused coping. You know, as in, if you're going to help take care of the med situation, um, there are things that can be bought at the store. There are people to consult with, gather information, lots of things you can do. And then there are the uncontrollable aspects, aspects that have to be accepted. And these require emotion-focused coping, such as stress reduction exercises. Come to the Osher Center and take mindfulness-based stress reduction. Um, Distraction, seeking emotional support. So there are things that can be done for what can be controlled, and there are things that can be done for what has to be accepted. And again, the sorting process helps a lot. So let me now talk about positive emotions in the stress process. And you know, you might say, are you kidding? I mean, stress is filled with negative emotion. It's anxiety, worry, and fear, anger, guilt, remorse, sadness. You name the list. It's a long list of emotions all of which characterize the stress process. The stress process is suffused with emotion. That's because it's tied constantly to the appraisal process of what's happening. And if things aren't going well, you're going to have negative emotion. So why is Susan talking about positive emotion in the stress process? The answer is, well, first of all, I mean, just what I was saying, when we think about stress, we think about distress and its harmful effects. Distress is harmful. It harms the endocrine system, immune system, cardiovascular system, digestive system, and probably every other system in the body. It it impedes family functioning, work functioning, and health behaviors. Distress is important. But where does positive emotion fit into the picture? Why, again, am I talking about it? So let me just tell you a brief tale of discovery. Um, When I moved from UC Berkeley to UCSF in the late 80s, I undertook a program of caregiver research that has since been joined by a number of wonderful colleagues here at the Osher Center, Judy Moskowitz, Patty Moran, um, a host, Mike Acri, a host of wonderful colleagues. And we've taken on three studies, caregiving partners of men with AIDS, maternal caregivers of children with HIV and other chronic illness, and patients with advanced AIDS or cancer and their family caregivers. And um, I took AIDS on, in particular, caregiving and AIDS in the early 1990s because I've always been interested in how it is that people survive, how people get through the worst of the stressful situations. And in the early 90s, HIV-AIDS provided the perfect storm of stress. Um, The caregiving was highly meaningful personally, if you're caregiving for a partner. Demands were unrelenting. The clinical course of HIV in those days was hideous. The ill partner's health deteriorated relentlessly, and then some caregivers were themselves HIV positive. And it's that last group, the caregivers who were themselves HIV positive, that I was particularly interested in because they had the double whammy of caregiving and their own seropositivity. So this was the group that we embarked upon studying. We were fortunate to be funded for over nine years in this research. And I'll just briefly tell you about this study. We recruited 314 men into the study. 86 were positive caregivers, 167 were negative caregivers, and a comparison for both groups of HIV-positive non-caregivers. And this group was the one, again, that I was most interested in. After two years, 
this number became bereaved. 58 of the positive caregivers lost their partners, and 98 of the HIV-negative caregivers lost their partners. When we began this study, when data collection began in 1990, there was something called the Kaplan-Meier curve that predicted how long people would live from diagnosis. It was about two years, and that's exactly reflected in these data. This just gives you a sense of that period and what it was like. So we assessed lots of things, as you can imagine, but I'm going to talk just about mood, which we assessed every two months for two years and every six months for three additional years. Positive mood, felt on top of the world, excited, I was happy, and negative mood, lonely, sad, couldn't get going. And this is what we found. Um, the positive and negative mood pre and post bereavement. Look at these data. The negative mood is in blue, the positive mood is in red, and that's not what you would expect. We had other data on these men during the same period during uh, depression, and it showed them significantly depressed. So while they, were being, while they were depressed and while they were experiencing negative mood, they were also experiencing positive mood. And this is what it looked like for the next three years. The positive mood was in the red, the negative mood in the blue. So fortunately, we had another instrument because people might say, oh, crazy measure that you were using. It had to do with the measure. So we also had a measure called positive states of mind where we measured focused attention, feeling able to attend to a task you want or need to do without many distractions from within yourself, restful repose, feeling relaxed without distractions or excessive tensions, and sharing, being able to commune with others in an empathic, closed way, as in walking, talking, or just being together. So this is very different items. They're more cognitive, they're less affective. And what did we find? The flat line is the community norm, and the bereaved caregivers are shown in red. And this is what it looked like for the next three years. This stunned us. It absolutely stunned us. So the first thing everyone told me was, Susan, that's just an aberration. It's San Francisco. It's gay men in San Francisco. Your findings aren't generalizable anywhere. And I said, that's an empirical question. I put aside philosophical issues and said, it's an empirical question. Other studies have reported the same pattern in studies of spinal cord injury, death of a child, spousal bereavement. And we have replicated it in studies of caregivers of ill children and patients with terminal illness. And let me just show you these data from our care preference study. These were um, patients whom we interviewed throughout the course of their last months. And here you see data at baseline and in third, second, and to last visit and last visit before they died. Look at the negative affect and look at the positive affect. Even as people are dying, even as their last days are coming, they're experiencing positive affect. So this puts aside, aside the question that it was aberrational data. In fact, people experience positive affect in the worst conditions of stress in all these different contexts. It's a solid finding. It's really there. It's not aberrational. It's not a fluke. It's real. And this is what it looks like in the lived experience. This is from one of the caregivers of the men with AIDS whose partner had died. There's a duality in my life. There's the whole caused by Jim's death, and yet there's also the ability to enjoy life. I just need to accept the fact that both aspects are there and that they can coexist. And that's what it's like to have this co-occurrence of positive and negative affect 
in a big way. It also happens in particular stressful situations that are complex or that are ambiguous. You feel good about one part of it and feel bad about another. Very rarely are our real life stressful situations just unidimensional. They're complex, they often include ambiguity, and that's when co-occurrence can occur. So, all right, now the big question. We see these positive emotions and they're there and others have seen them over all the years. The question was, do they matter? Others had thought they didn't. Otherwise, others would have picked up on the findings in their own data that they were there. But we thought maybe they did. Anyway, it turns out more recently that there is evidence that positive emotions are growing. Positive emotions have sort of caught on. And they're showing, studies are showing that they predict morbidity and mortality in general population and in people with diseases with AIDS and type 2 diabetes. And again, Judy Moskowitz, who works with us, has done two of these recent studies, uh, secondary analyses of data, that show it is predicting survival in type 2 diabetes and in HIV AIDS. So how do people generate those positive emotions when things are going badly? We've shown that they coexist. I've shown you, you have to take me on faith a little bit because I can't show you all the literature today, but that they do matter. How do people do it? Well, first of all, we're not talking about Pollyanna. We're not saying just put a smile on and everything, send, you know, send every message with a little happy face and you'll feel fine. And we're not talking about denial. The positive emotions that people feel are not the result of denial. People accept the fact that there are difficult things going on in their lives and they still experience positive emotions. How? So we're going to come up, and we did come up, with a third category of, of coping called meaning-focused coping. We had problem-focused, we had emotion-focused, this is meaning-focused. And these kinds of coping strategies relate specifically to positive emotion. They're not related to the regulation of negative emotion, just to the regulation of positive emotion. And we have identified four coping strategies in our data that create positive emotions and mood. So what contributes to, mean, contributes to meaning? First of all, values. This gives you the mattering amount, the mattering question. How much does it matter to me? That's a question of values. It has to do with goals. What organizes me? What are the things I strive for? What are the things that matter? It has to do with expectations, and which has also to do with hope about yourself and about the world. How am I in the world, and how is the world towards me? And it has to do with spiritual and religious beliefs, which provide existential framework for folks. And possibly, you might not be able to read the text on this cartoon, but it shows a man who has ascended a high mountain peak and finds a wise man sitting at the top, and he says to him, you mean I do the hokey pokey and I turn myself around and that's what it's all about? So maybe that's the answer. So strategy one is goal revision. And here it's very important. First of all is to relinquish untenable goals, which is what happens if you follow the first part of the serenity prayer or you follow the serenity prayer. Now what you can do and what you can't do and let go of what it is that you cannot do. But the important part is to substitute new goals that are both realistic and meaningful. This is the critical element. Relinquish the ones that are not tenable, and substitute new ones that are both realistic and meaningful. And let me give you an example 
of what this looks like. First of all, what does this do? It helps sustain a certain sense of control. It creates a renewed sense of purpose, and it allows hope and optimism with respect to new goals. Those are very important elements, control, purpose, and optimism. And here's an example of someone who was able to do just that, a participant with advanced AIDS. And you'll notice that in the first paragraph, he refers to himself in the third person and the second in the first. Rob, look at you. You're still here. You can't do all the things you used to do. You used to have all the diamonds and golds and all the fun you wanted. You can't do that anymore. Those days are gone. And so I try to think about what now? What do I do now with the time I have left? In my actions, in my spiritual life, pray more, be nicer to other people, give. So you can see what he relinquished and what he substituted. And you also get a feeling in that substitution that this is meaningful in a very positive way. Here's an example of when goal revision doesn't occur. The interviewer asked, how did you spend your day? And the man with advanced AIDS said, moping, depressed, trying to get as close to the life I had before I got sick. So there's a beautiful illustration of what happens when you don't relinquish a goal that's no longer tenable. You get depressed. If you do relinquish the goal and substitute a new one, you have positive emotion. You feel better. Strategy two, creating positive moments. So this is to infuse ordinary events with positive meaning. Um, little moments, such as looking at a beautiful flower or a sunset, or having a, 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 a coworker say thank you, um, tasting something that's delicious. Just an ordinary moment, and you stop the camera, you stop the fast forward, and you look at it, and you appreciate it, and you revel in it. This provides a breather from distress, and it helps restore resources. Um, interestingly, we asked this question because in our study of the gay male caregivers, they said, you are not asking us about any of the positive things that happen in your life. All you're interested in is stress and caregiving and the difficult things that happen. We want to tell you about some positive things. So we introduced a question that said, tell me about a positive moment, something that happened that helped you get through the day. And what was interesting was not so much what these were about, because they were about just the ordinary events of daily life. What was interesting was that we asked the question, I think, in about 1,700 interviews, and in about 1,690, the men had an event to tell us. These were men whose partners were dying of a hideous disease and who themselves were often getting sick. And yet they had these positive events to tell us. And of course, we became an intervention study on a large scale by asking the question, because the men would come in and say, do I have a nice event for you today? So we became an intervention. There was nothing we could do about it, but we got wonderful information about how you create positive moments. And here's an example of a mother of a child with HIV. This is from our, our study of maternal caregivers. Yeah, it may sound stupid, but all the things my son wanted, the wrestling stuff, I found everything on sale. Things that were $40, I got for $10. And these are things that he asked me for. I felt really good, and like I really did something good then. I went downtown, and I took care of what I had to take care of, like I really accomplished something. See how great she's in it? She's in that event. She's feeling good about it. She's feeling wonderful about what she accomplished. You can just feel her good, positive emotion coming through. 
the next one is benefit finding, which is to reflect on growth in personal strengths and resources. This reinforces positive beliefs about yourself and the world. And here is an example from an exit interview of a bereaved partner of a man with AIDS. I have learned that I am a stronger person than I probably ever imagined, and that I could have, ever, I could have more resources within me than I could ever have imagined. I would have never chosen to go through the loss of him, but it has been a very positive thing for my life because I am a much stronger, much better person going through this side of it all. And I'm sure if I asked each of you if you've been through a recent stressful event or a situation or even a more one that happened a while back, that out of it you came with greater strength than you went in. That's my guess. We develop resources. The resources that we have the capacity to develop are often untapped until something bad happens. And then we grow them, we expand them, and we actually become stronger, more knowledgeable, more competent. Um, this is called benefit finding. It doesn't always happen, but it often happens. And when it does, it's all right to say what this man has said. I have learned that I am a stronger person. Um, sometimes we don't like to admit or to ourselves, perhaps, that something good came from something bad. But very often it does, and it's that co-occurrence. The fact that something good happened doesn't demean the bad that happened. They co-occur, they live next to each other. And the last one is to focus on what matters. I'm sure you have all had the experience in your own lives where I've heard other people say, I got rid of all the stuff that didn't matter and I just focused on what really mattered. I rearranged my priorities. I took care of what was important and nothing else mattered. My child was sick. I didn't care what was going on at work or anything else. My child had to get better and that's what I focused on. Focusing on what really matters. It motivates coping and it helps sustain commitment. When you get that focused, you become energized, your motivation goes up, your energy for dealing with what you have to cope with goes up. All of those things happen. And I'm going to read you a narrative now that illustrates this in a very, in a very poignant way. We asked about the most stressful events that happen to people, and this is this person's reporting of it. The most stressful daily challenges are the severe night and day sweats that John gets. Let's go with last night. Like all other nights, I bring John back upstairs around 10 p.m. I settle him in, and within minutes he begins. It's beyond sweating. Night sweats doesn't describe what's going on. The, world that comes to, the word that comes to mind is that he is leaking. For the next two, five, eight hours, he sweats through a long sleeve shirt and a terry cloth bathrobe, and also through a pillow and the sheets. This process can take 20 minutes to half an hour, at which point I disturb him, but he's appreciative of getting out of these wet things and into a dry shirt and bathrobe. He'll settle down and relax a little, and I take a cold cloth to his forehead and a mist and wait anywhere for 20 to 30 minutes until the next episode, and we repeat the process. On a good night, it's four times. Last night, we did it 10 times. The thought that comes to mind is that I'm glad we have a heavy-duty washer and dryer on the premises. And here is where he focuses. Personally, I feel proud, pleased that I can comfort him and have the energy, and God knows where that is coming from, to cope. The event shows our tremendous love for each other. We are still making our love for each other the focal point. I think that these words convey the power 
of getting down to the heart of what matters. This is what happens when you have to cope with something that's very, very hard. The only way to keep going is to focus on what matters. And when you do it, there's a certain joy that can come alongside the sadness and the challenge and the distress. It shows our tremendous love for each other. That's an affirming emotion. And that's what happens when you really care and when you really focus on what matters. All right, so we have some other strategies that are coming up in the literature. Amplify positive events. Tell someone close to you what happened and why it made you feel good. I've made a little um, acronym here, AGE. (laughs) Um, One of the ways in which we can make ourselves feel better is to tell someone close to us about something that has made us feel good. The act of sharing it amplifies the event. You relive it a little bit, your emotions get positive emotions get going and because you will have chosen someone who is close to you to tell this to that person will be happy for you you don't want to tell this to someone who has it in for you you want to choose someone who is close to you a gratitude journal gratitude is a wonderful I don't know if it's an emotion or a state of mind we all have things to be grateful for people to be grateful for the world to be grateful for Keeping a gratitude journal is good for positive emotion and it's good for the soul. And engage in acts of kindness. Um, the other evening, my daughter and I were driving home from Napa. It was late on a late last Tuesday night. And she, I was bringing her home because I was going to put my daughter to work with me in the kitchen the next day to prepare our Passover Seder. So we had both had long days. It was late at night. We were driving home across the Bay Bridge. We got to the toll booth, and the toll keeper said, you go on through, the car ahead of you paid for you. We were just stunned. That was an act of kindness, an unexpected act of kindness. And you can be sure the next time I go through that toll gate, I'm going to pay for the car behind me. These unexpected acts of kindness are wonderful. They're wonderful to receive, but they're even better when you initiate them. Now, Judy Moskowitz and her colleagues are are um, doing a trial right now, a randomized control trial, about teaching people some of these strategies for positive emotion. And um, it will be a wonderful trial. It has control groups and everything else to teach this new intervention, which is called IRIS in her acronym. So we'll see what the RCT says. But in the meantime, I can tell you all that these things are guaranteed to make you feel good when you're thinking about the economy, when you're thinking about the other side in your political scheme of things that you wish you either was in power or was not in power. Um, it's good for you when your car begins to give you trouble on the freeway. These strategies are good at any time. And if you put on the brakes with the negative, negative things that are happening, with the stress that's going on, and remember, oh, Yes, it's right to feel bad about these things. These things are, it's appropriate to feel anxious and worried and fearful. Um, That's totally acceptable. What's good to know is that I can also feel good while those things are going on. I, I met a man recently who had been through a very difficult situation and was depressed. And I said, of course you're depressed. You know, the depression isn't pathological. You've been through something very, very difficult. But did you know that while you're in this state, you can also experience positive emotion? And he was amazed. He said, no, I never thought about it that way. 
So we did a few of these things. I'm not a clinical psychologist, so this takes a little bit of free freelancing of some sort. But um, I said there are ways that you can make yourself feel better even while you're feeling depressed. And that made him feel so much better. You know, just in front of me, he transformed. So these are different ways of engaging the positive emotions while things are bad. You don't have to make the bad go away. If the circumstances around your life are difficult, they're not going to go away. Your reactions are appropriate. They help mobilize you for behavior. They help mobilize your thinking. But what you can do is take a break from it. Take a break from the negative parts of stress and have these moments where you can have positive emotion. Now what I'd like to do, if this group will allow me this freedom, is to suggest that we engage in one of these, one of these strategies. And the one I'm going to suggest is amplification. So what I'd like you to do is to find a person next to you, and if you don't find someone next to you, to move some close to someone near you, and do, these, do this very simple thing. Each of you take 30 seconds and talk about something that made you feel good in the last few days. And it doesn't have to be big and profound. It can be very, very small, like coming across the, toll, the Bay Bridge and having someone pay your fare for you. But tell the person about it and tell them why it made you feel good. What about it made you feel good? So tell about your event, describe it, and say, what about it made you feel good? And then it's the other person's turn. And then I want you to face me. So you get 30 seconds for each. So if anyone, can, if anyone doesn't have a partner, we'll team up with three. So what was your reaction to that? to that very brief one-minute exercise. What happened to you? Smiling. Smiling. Uplifting. Uplifting. Animated. Animated. Warmth. Warmth. Felt good to share. Felt good to share. All right, that was one minute with people whom you probably don't know very well. Um, from my perspective, what happened was this room just filled with energy. It filled with people chattering in a very upbeat way. Um, that was one minute. So just think what this can do uh, if you do this on a regular basis. Um, John Cohn, Jonathan Cohn is here. And, excuse me, Michael. <laughs> and he studies a lot of this positive emotion. Um, you had the privilege of studying with Barbara Fredrickson, one of the leaders in positive psychology. And I think you can affirm that in non-stressful situations, these emotions happen a lot. What we're doing now is studying the stressful emotions, the positive emotions in stressful circumstances. Now, I guarantee that every person who has come into this room this morning has some stress in his or her life. And that, in fact, the morning was stressful. Some portion of the morning was stressful. You're going to leave this room at lunchtime after having had a stressful morning feeling really good. I promise you. And it may fade within the hour, but you will have had the experience <laughs> of feeling really good. So with that, I just want to say I thank you. We now have time. We do have time for questions. Yes. Some years ago, I had the pleasure of meeting with Dr. Hans Selye. Yes. Sure you're familiar with it. And he distinguished 
we treat two kinds of stress. Distress, which is the bad kind, and eustress, E-U, I think it's a Greek word, good stress and bad stress. And I had a, a job some years ago where I experienced both at the same time. The job itself I found quite demanding, but it was exhilarating and I enjoyed it. Yet some of the interpersonal relationships were distressful. So I actually kind of experienced both at the same time. That's a very good example. Hans Selye, um, the EU stands for good. It's Greek for good. And Hans Selye is really the either the grandfather of stress research or when I was working with Lazarus, he was considered the father and Lazarus was considered the son. And then Lazarus became the father and Selye became the grandfather. And I'm not sure if I became the granddaughter. <laughs> but anyway, um, he did speak of that. Interesting about Selye's work, he had something called the general adaptation syndrome, which de described a physiological response to stress. But he never asked the question what caused the stress, the psychological part of it. And this reflects a separation of the psychological aspects of stress from the physiological that occurred during the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s. And they only came back together really in the 60s and 70s, where both the psychological and the physiological were seen as a part of the whole. So, but your illustration is a beautiful one. And um, it very graphically demonstrates how the eustress and distress can co-occur. It's a very lovely illustration of that. By the way, Selye used to eat garlic on airplanes to, to make sure no one sat next to him. <laughs> he was a Canadian. He was a Canadian. For the next question, you just Oh, yes. Thank you. I'm sorry. That was an illustration of someone who said at his work, um, he experienced both good stress and bad stress, the exhilaration in the work that he had to do and distress in the interpersonal aspects of the work. Uh, any other questions? Yes. You mentioned Barbara Fredrickson, and I know one of the things she writes about is the ability of positive emotions to undo some of the consequences of negative emotions. Well, I think Dr. Cohen might want to talk about that since he was the one who works with her. But you'll have to come up here to do it. No, I'm pretty loud, actually. I'm not, OK. Can he speak? Is his voice loud enough? Uh, no, because the mic All right, then perhaps I'll just try to take it. Yes, she does talk about the undoing aspects of positive emotion, that they can help restore your physiological um, indicators of stress back to their normal patterns. The, the positive emotions restore, restore, are restorative. Yeah, absolutely right. Any other questions? Well, that's good, because I'm not doing a very good job of repeating the questions for our <laughs> video audience. All right, well, I want to thank you very much. You've been very, very uplifting to speak with. And I'm going to return to work feeling better for having had this interaction with you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.